awesome to see you today. Good to have all of our visitors here as well. Um, today, of course, is um, Easter Sunday, uh, the day when, at least in the Christian world, um, everyone is celebrating you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, um, which is an awesome story. We probably sometimes take it for granted, being believers, but think about it. It, it was at a time when all hope seemed to be lost. Jesus had actually been crucified, executed by uh, a seemingly invincible Roman power um, on the Friday before. And then the news emerges that he had actually come forth from the tomb alive. This was an astounding claim, but proved to be true. And as he appeared to one person after another, it became clear Jesus of Nazareth had triumphed over death. And it was the ultimate good news. And it's always good news. Uh, no matter how many times, you know, Sunday after Sunday, we assemble um, in our little church to, uh, to retell the story and to celebrate it uh, every week. Uh, it's just so great to think about the news that he is, in fact, risen. And yet this year, perhaps, the news falls on ears especially eager to hear something positive. To talk about resurrection and new life in a time of pandemic with all of its death and disorder and despair is like throwing a life preserver to someone who is drowning in a storm-tossed sea. All of this bad news in indeed comes at us wave upon wave as if we are being flooded, flooded with virus, flooded with death, flooded with anxiety, flooded with advice, sometimes conflicting advice, flooded, flooded with confusion, flooded with boredom. So on this, um, yeah, it's not, it's not working again. I don't know what's going on there. Okay. All right, there we go. It stopped working and started working. Anyway, uh, we're gonna have a little adventure today. Um, this is supposed to be, I don't know if you can see it on the screen, a stormy background. I'm hoping everybody can still see this. Um, trying to convey this idea of, of, of just chaos and, uh, and uh, disorder and darkness. And uh, we want to talk about this, but we want to talk about something else. We want to talk about hope in this kind of storm. Um, this may seem like an odd choice for a sermon topic for Easter Sunday, but I'd like to take us back to another traumatic time. Um, not just when people were being flooded with anxiety and bad news, but a, a time of actual flood, the flood of Noah's day. So I want to look at Genesis chapter six through nine for a, a few minutes this morning and talk about hope in the storm. And the story begins with a world gone off the, the rails, a world that has run amok. The idyllic world that God created back in Genesis 1 and 2 has devolved into kind of a nightmare um, ever since the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What was once described as good, God saw that it was good day after day of creation. He saw that after the sixth day of creating humanity, it was very good. Um, become something quite different. Once it was wonderful, Adam and Eve are perfect companions for one another. They're put in a beautiful garden world. They are given gratifying work. Um, 
In Genesis 1:28, we read, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And things change. They go from being allowed to, um, you know, this, this right here is what's often called the cultural mandate. God is actually inviting Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, to work with him and having dominion and bringing care and protection to the natural world, the creation that he's given them. They're gardeners. They are protectors of, of the garden and one's uh, called with him to, to manage it. Uh, co-regents, co-managers with God. It's quite an honor. And they can go out among uh, the, the beautiful trees of the garden and, and, and view their beauty and also eat from all of them with the exception of one. In, in Genesis 2, we read the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put a man whom he had formed and out of the garden, the Lord God made to spring up of every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And he commanded men saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, just doing a check. Can everybody, we all working, seeing the, the slides? Good, okay. I can't see anything but the slide when I'm preaching because if I put the thing up there, it covers my scriptures. So I just wanted to do a little check there, a tech check. Um, anyway, so um, imagine being able to go out and look at beautiful trees and just pick the low-hanging fruit and to have a vocation, a, a line of work that is fulfilling and satisfying. You've got the most perfect companion in the world, Adam and Eve do, and you're living in this paradise of a world and you're invited to perfect it even more, to develop it even further. And sin ruins all of that. Sin brings tension into that wonderful companionship, the relationship between Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter um, 3, uh, 16, we read this. To the woman, he said, this is after the sin, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That wasn't the picture pre-sin. This is the relationship between Adam and Eve after the so-called fall. They've got this tension. There is a, a, an attraction, but also a tension in their, in their otherwise um, erstwhile uh, wonderful relationship. There is a curse also brought on the ground, that good earth that was producing all these beautiful and wonderful things for them to eat and to enjoy. Work, which was formerly fulfilling, now would be mixed with futility and frustration. In chapter 3, verse 17, we read, uh, that to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So work becomes futile, frustrating, a daily uphill battle. And I want you to think of all the news we're hearing lately, just all the hardships endured just by our medical workers and our public health administrators who are just trying to get the supplies and the gear and the tests that they desperately need. And it's so difficult. And the economy spirals out of control with, this, with every piece of bad news. So we live in a world now, post-fall, post-sin, where things don't just default to working harmoniously and seamlessly. 
I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could go out and pick low-hanging, you know, ventilators off of ventilator trees or low-hanging PPE for our medical workers? It doesn't work like that. It's uphill. And, and that's the result. That's what happened to the world, to the earth and to its creatures after sin. Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim characterizes all of the texts between the sin in Genesis 3 up to the flood that begins in Genesis chapter 6 as what he calls evidence of the snowballing effects of sin. Sin has effects that snowball over time. And if you think about it, in chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the two offspring, the first two offspring born to Adam and Eve, run into problems. Cain uh, becomes jealous of Adam and, his, and how his gift, uh, his offering to God is accepted, so Cain murders Adam. He is then made uh, a fugitive and a wanderer in God's judgment upon him and sent off to live this nomadic lifestyle. Um, and God says he'll protect him and avenge sevenfold anybody who harms Cain, but he is driven away and the ground is cursed further for Cain. And then further down in chapter 4, in a, a little poem that doesn't get as much airtime, I think, maybe not as familiar to most Christians nowadays, but it really shows kind of the snowballing trajectory of the effects of sin. And that is a man named Lamech. And I believe this is really the first poem by a human being after the fall, after, you know, living east of Eden, outside the garden. I mean, Adam had some poetic words about his wife being bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. That was a beautiful poem of love. This is the first poem in the world that we now inhabit, East of Eden. And it's very telling to me that the first poem in that world is a poem of vengeance. Think of how, how much vengeance is a theme in our movies and how much of, of our daily motivations this is for so many people. But this is what Lamech says to his wives, Adah and Zillah. He says, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, what God said he would do to avenge anyone who harmed Cain, Lamech's, he says, will be 77-fold. Seven and multiples of seven in the Bible are theologically significant numbers, meaning perfection, meaning completion. Something that is seven times or 77 times is just the nth degree. He is saying, I will bring the ultimate, consummate, perfect revenge on the people who have hurt me. It's going to be far beyond what they did to me. They strike me sort of hard. I'm going to strike them as hard as I can. That's pretty much the way the, the geopolitical world works. And, and truth be told, that's the way a lot of human relationships work. That's a picture of where the world is going after the sin. It is snowballing further and further down. It is running amok. And then we come to the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Now, genealogies don't make the most riveting, uh, riveting reading, but this one is really interesting. It goes from Adam, the first man, up to Noah. That's what Genesis 5 is. I don't have the whole thing on here, but a couple of excerpts. I'm not even going to read the whole thing. I just want you to notice that back in Genesis 3, um, or Genesis 2, rather, God said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, Adam and Eve. Human beings, you're given free reign, carte blanche. Knock yourselves out. There's only one tree you're, you're prohibited from eating, and that's the tree in the middle of the garden known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree from which they eat. That is the sin in the garden that starts this snowballing effect. And God had said, in the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. And look at the genealogy in Genesis 5. It, Adam lived 930 years, verse 5, and he died. 
All the days of Seth were 912 years, verse 8, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Now you come down to verse 31, and it says all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died, and then Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're not told that Noah died, but all, everybody, because the story is going to move into Noah's flood right after this. But everybody else, with the exception of Enoch, who walks with God and is um, just sort of taken up into heaven or something like that, humanity is now dying. This was not the original plan in the garden, but this is the result of sin. And it eerily evokes this phrase, and he died, eerily evokes the warning at Eden that the result of sin would be death. And so the world has become hopelessly, pervasively evil. And in Genesis 6, when we open up the first chapter that starts telling us about the flood that's going to happen, here's the context. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man. I will wipe out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal, animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So it's a picture of God grieving, like a parent grieving. It uses the word grieved and sorry, um, he, regret. And then in verse 11, we read more specifically what the sin was that was snowballing so much. He says in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Think about this. Just five chapters into the story of Genesis. So five chapters after chapter one, where God pronounced everything good. And then in, on day six, very good. Just five chapters later, We've gone from good and very good to corrupt, violent, and apparently beyond redemption. And to top matters off, notice the statement in verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was so great that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only, he's not talking about one man, he's talking about humanity. And notice that you, you could hardly style a more redundant, more emph, uh, you know, emphatically redundant statement than this. Not just some of the intentions of the thoughts of his heart, every intention of the thought of his heart. And not just the stuff on the surface that people see, the thoughts of his heart, like you know, everything. And it was only evil, not partially evil or mostly evil, only evil, not part of the time, but continually. Every intention of thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. And so we've got uh, quite a, a, a world now, um, and it's hardly the world as God intended it. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. And with Noah, we get is what is a, a new beginning, really. A new beginning, uh, not only for humanity, but for the world. At the conclusion of that genealogy in chapter 5, the immediately preceding chapter to the beginning of the flood story, in Genesis 5, 28 and 29, we read about Noah. Something very interesting. Lamech lived 182 years, Genesis 5, 28, fathered a son and called his name Noah. This is from that genealogy, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Some interesting things about this, because the word relief uh, 
can be translated, you may have uh, comfort, I think, in the NIV. He, uh, the New American Standard uses the word rest. But uh, the word Noah is, is a, a Hebrew name which means rest. You know, we, we don't always have names that we give people because they mean something. We just like the way they, they sound half the time. Or we're naming them after some football star or movie star or something like that. Uh, we like the ring of it, you know, the sort of sound to our ears. Most of the names in the Bible have theological significance. Noah's name is actually the, the word rest, or the, the meaning of his name is the word rest. And it sounds a lot like uh, the Hebrew word for rest here uh, that's translated relief. There's kind of a phonetic uh, uh, similarity between these. So it, it's almost like he's saying, Lamech fathers a son whose name is rest, and he's going to bring rest from the curse of the land that sin has brought upon us and made all of our labor uh, in this world so different than it was intended. So that's Noah's purpose. And in Genesis 6, verse 8, we read, after God is talking about how the, the thoughts of every human being's hearts were only evil continually and the world is wicked and he needs to start over, we read in verse 8 that God found favor, I'm sorry, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. Now, I want to suggest to you that the flood is an act by God of cosmic salvation, cosmic redemption. What I mean by that is that God is saving through the, 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 through the flood. He, it's, his, it's his saving plan for all creation, all the world. I think we often think of the flood story as a story of destruction, not salvation. Or, or maybe if we think about it in terms of salvation at all, we think about it sort of individualistically or, you know, in, in terms of just the family of Noah. It's a story of salvation maybe of one man and his family, but for everybody else, it's a story of destruction. And, and those things are true. It is a story of destruction. It's a story of salvation of a man and his family, but it's much, much, much more than that. The flood is nothing less than, as one writer puts it, a reboot of creation. William Edgar, in a book called Created and Creating, says this, about the purpose of the flood. And I think the text around the flood, around the actual flood um, from Genesis 6 through 9 bears this out. He writes, the flood was a catastrophic event in which a crooked humanity with its boastful purposes was arrested, was stopped. Yet it, that is the flood, carried redemption at the same time. Part of God's saving purpose is to put sin to death. In certain ways, the flood, followed by the covenant with Noah, represents a reboot of the creation. Think of your computer. It gets fouled up, and there's all kinds of viruses on it, and it's just not working. It's gone haywire. It's not what it was intended by its manufacturer to be. It's not like it was the day you got it out of the box three years ago. You need to, you need to reboot it. You, maybe you need to reformat it, you know, or whatever. But he says that's what, that's what the flood is, a reboot of creation. It is no surprise, then, that the first major restatement of that cultural mandate, the first thing said to humanity after they're created in Genesis 128, is within the Noachian covenant, the covenant with Noah. So think of the flood as God sort of decreating so that he can recreate. He can renew. It's a reboot of creation. Again, the cultural mandate is restated in the flood. That tells us that we're, we're, we're being alerted to the fact that this has something to do with restarting creation in a sense. So in chapter 8, verse 15, at the conclude, when it's time to come out of the ark, when the flood it, 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 waters have receded, God said to Noah, uh, Genesis 8, 15, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wife with you. 
And then in chapter 9, verse 1, a few verses down, notice what he says. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, where have we seen this language before? God blesses humanity and then says, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Well, that's exactly the language of Genesis 128, the so-called cultural mandate. Cultural because culture in the old etymological sense of the word, not violins and fancy plays and operas. Culture in the, the older, truer sense of the word, more fundamental sense, that you're making culture, you're cultivating whatever it is, art, science, agriculture, uh, psychology, everything that we make, that we build, right? Houses, all of that. Um, this is that cultural mandate being repeated. God's blessing the people and, that he's created, and then he's saying, I want you to have this relationship with creation. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over it. The things that God was said to have done in Genesis. He's inviting humanity yet again to renew their commitment to this renewed creation. And you really see this especially in the covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9, 8 through 17, we've got an excerpt of it here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I want you to notice especially the stuff that we've got highlighted in red. Uh, when God makes this covenant with Noah, I want you to notice that it's not just a covenant with Noah himself alone, or even just Noah and human beings alone. It's actually worded as a covenant between humanity, Noah and humanity, along with every other creature on the whole earth, and even with the earth itself. I don't think we think of that a lot. God is making a covenant with everything he created, uh, a new covenant. It says in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. And then down in verse 13, he calls it a covenant between me and the earth. So there's really not anything that was described as created back in Genesis 1 and 2 that God isn't making a covenant with in this post-Diluvian world, where it's been cleansed, the evil has been cleansed and renewed by the flood, and now it's going to get a fresh start. Now let's zero in on this sign of the covenant. This is really interesting. Verse 12, God begins talking about a sign, a symbol, something in the natural world that will repeatedly symbolize and remind people in subsequent generations, forever down to our very day, of the covenant God made with Noah, humanity, and every created thing, including the earth itself. Verse 12, uh, Genesis 9, 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. Here it is. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And he goes ahead to say more about how when we see this rainbow, we can be reminded of this everlasting covenant that God is making with his creation, with his world. I want to tell you now about a recent experience I had. So a few nights ago, I, don't, I think it was maybe last Monday night, I don't remember the exact night, but just this past week, one uh, late afternoon, early evening, I decided to go to go out uh, fly fishing. I like to fly fish, I don't get to do it very much anymore, and just, you know, 
kind of had it up to here with pandemic stuff. So I just went alone out to uh, the, the nice pond that Rick and David have. And uh, it was a beautiful evening. It's like 70 degrees. Um, you know, that evening sunlight, kind of the way it, 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 it at the angles, it, it, the, the sunlight glistens off the water. And I was all alone out there, just me and my fly rod. And um, it was really, really beautiful. It's also kind of poignant for me. Uh, because most of the times when I would have a fly rod and a popping bug and a farm pond, it, it involved my, my it involved my father. And uh, as y'all know, he passed away back a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago now in November. And so it was really nostalgic out there. I, I felt like my dad should be with me. He had fished in that, you know, at that pond with me before. And, uh, you know, it just really made me miss him. I missed him. Cutting, cutting jokes and the whole bit and, you know, claiming that his fish that he were catching are bigger than mine, which was never true, by the way, sometimes. But anyway, uh, it was kind of, uh, uh, had a surreal feel to it. Then the sky started filling with dark clouds and it started raining, uh, sort of came out of nowhere. And I started thinking, you know, I got to cut out of here. So I reeled in my line and started, you know, hustling back to the car. But before I got back to the car, the rain stopped almost as soon as it started. And I looked up and I saw this. I don't know if you can see it very well, but that's not just one rainbow. There's a double rainbow. Faintly, you can see the second one. And they went across the whole sky. It was a complete double rainbow. I, I couldn't capture the whole thing with much clarity with my phone. Plus I was holding the fly rod and doing it, you know, sideways and whatnot. But anyway, uh, here, here it is blown up a little more. Look at that reflecting off of the pond. Um, what do rainbows say to us? And what does that have to do with resurrection? Rainbows say to us basically, God isn't finished with this place. However sad and dark, however sad and dark it may appear, life and light will ultimately triumph over death and darkness. The rainbow is saying, death and decay and despair are not going to have the last word. I want to share with you a quote from a book, Matt uh, Harbour, and it's great to see Matt earlier and see those images of Jerusalem. But when he and I were teaching Genesis together back before they left to go to, to Jerusalem, we used this book as one of our four or five books, a book by R.W.L. Moberly on Genesis. And here's what he says about rainbows. It is in what the flood story leads up to that its significance is primarily to be found. That is, although the story indeed begins with God's decision to wipe out life on earth because of its corruption, its goal, that is the, the story's goal, where it's headed, its point, is the divine decision never again to wipe out life on the earth. The rainbow becomes a symbol of this divine commitment to sustain life on earth. And then he says this, his own musings about rainbows. A rainbow usually appears after a time of heavy rain when the sun comes out and shines again, but while dark clouds are still in the sky. And often the dark clouds are a backdrop for the many colors of the rainbow. Thus, when the rainbow is viewed in the light of the preceding flood narrative, its appearance at the very moment when one can see both darkness and light in the sky 
comes to symbolize God's commitment to light over darkness, to beauty over chaos, to life over death. Beautiful thought. And of course, rainbows still appear as they did for me the other night. You know, long after the flood of Noah's day, millennia later, we're still being reminded by these rainbows of God's promise. But the flood itself um, did not succeed in remaking the creation, not at least in its human creation. In many ways, the story tells us nothing changes at all. And this is sad. Before the flood, we read this in Genesis 6. This is the, the reason for the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you'd think that the flood, cleansing all that away, would have changed everything. I mean, the only people, you know, sort of left in this pristine earth are the righteous Noah, ostensibly righteous Noah, and his family. But after the flood, what do we read? Noah builds an altar to the Lord, Genesis 8.20 and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God's now saying nothing has really changed with humanity. There's still, it's not exactly verbatim, but it's close. Conceptually, that's verbatim. From your youth, Every intention of your heart and my heart and everybody's heart, it's a universal sounding statement, right, is evil. We've got a problem with evil. We are flawed. We are broken. We're messed up. And we're supposed to be God's co-regents over this creation. And we often take creation on a bad, wild ride with us. And God is saying, I'm going to give you the sign of the rainbow anyway. He's committed. He's in all the way, both feet, even though the intention of our heart is evil from, from youth. So um, <laughs> the whole flood story is bracketed by a statement of intractable universal human sin, right? Before the flood, after the flood, we have this universal statement about the intractability of sin. And so this brings up the need for our final point. And that has to do, as you might have guessed, with Jesus. Let me present to you for the few minutes we have left this idea that Jesus Christ is the superior Noah. He is in, he's many things. He's everything. He's the hub of the whole cosmos, according to Colossians 1. But one of the things he is, is a better Noah. Let me suggest what I mean. First of all, like, Jesus is very much like Noah. He has, he has a role in the narrative of the Bible very much like Noah in many ways. Remember how Noah's name meant rest, and he was going to bring rest to this world run amok? Well, we read in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, that Jesus extended this beautiful invitation that's familiar to many of us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus brings rest to the world just as Noah had done. Also like Noah, Jesus is an agent, if you will, of new creation. He has he is inaugurated and will one day consummate a whole new world in the same way that Noah presided over a world that was being decreated and then in a sense renewed or recreated, at least on some level. In Acts chapter 3, 
we read that heaven must hold Jesus or receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Not some things, not just your individual souls into a reconciliation with him. That's not what the text says. That's included. You're part of everything, but you're not everything. There's a whole lot of other stuff out there. And all of it was promised long ago through the prophets repeatedly to have been uh, that, that one day it would be restored to its rightful relationship with God. The language that both Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 use is this, that everything in heaven and on earth will be unified in Christ in the fullness of time. We're not there yet. Lots of things are, are in rebellion against uh, God. He is the rightful, Jesus is the rightful hub of the cosmos. It's sort of spinning out of control. One day, though, the prophets say, and the Apostle Paul writes, Everything in heaven and on earth, that's the cosmos, will be reunited in Jesus in the fullness of time. And of course, the consummate example of this is the vision of John in Revelation 21, 1 and 2, where he sees a vision of the new heaven and new earth descending, or, 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 or the new heaven and new earth with the new Jerusalem in verse 2, coming down, descending out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this idea of the bride and the husband, of course, is the church in Jesus. The church is called the bride of Christ, and her husband is the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ. So you have this new heaven and earth, a new creation that is uh, effected by, brought about by, and brought about for Jesus Christ. And so both Noah and Jesus are agents of new creation. And then there's the whole idea of resurrection, the closely related idea of resurrection. Jesus' bodily resurrection, of course, is what inaugurates new creation. That's the first step of new creation. It's already happened, but it promises more. It foreshadows um, other, uh, you know, rebirth. Noah was also, in some ways, a, a, a picture of resurrection, at least in a way, uh, in a kind of poetic way. Though, though Noah would eventually die, he, along with Enoch in chapter 5, that genealogy in Genesis 5, um, uh, you know, are, are the, the two folks who escape right, from Genesis 5's genealogy without being described as, and he died. That's it, Noah. Uh, Noah will eventually die, but he's in Gen Genesis 5, and he's the one person along with Enoch, who's a special case, who doesn't have to die. And more than that, Noah presides over a kind of resurrection of the earth, if you will. The earth goes from death in the flood to new life, with all that creation language uh, reprised in Genesis 8 and 9. So there's just so many parallels. As the rainbow pointed Noah to God's good future, the promise of God's good future, so Christ's resurrection was a glimpse of the future that God holds out for his people, for us, and for the whole renewed world that we will inhabit. So we need to think about that practically. However bad all this gets, the tomb is still empty. You know, it doesn't matter what happens with the pandemic or our jobs or whatever else, the tomb is empty. There was a time in Paul's life when he despaired even of life itself. I think this is 2 Corinthians 1, but he said, I was driven by that to just trust in the one, the God who raises us from the dead. If it comes to it and we all die, guess what? The tomb is empty. And that is merely first fruits. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit, the first harvest of what is to come. So in 2 Corinthians 5, we read this, Christ died for all, verse 15, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Notice, died and raised, crucifixion and resurrection. So here's the upshot. 
If anyone is in Christ, verse 17, there is new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And we have to develop the eyes, uh, the spirits, the hearts, the, 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 uh, the holiness, the conduct that, that demonstrates to those around us that, that we believe that this promise is not only coming, it's already broken into the present dark world. That's what the resurrection, that's what the empty tomb, that's what the rainbow and all these other things signify to us. Now, the reason Christ's death and resurrection eventuates in our own uh, uh, new creation when we're, you know, when we become Christians, um, the reason for that, the reason that is possible, highlights a major difference between Jesus on the one hand and Noah on the other. For all the similarities, there's a key difference. Noah and the flood in Noah's day could not ultimately triumph over sin. We've already seen that. Christ did. Let me give you one illustration of this, how Christ relates to the creation, all of his duties, blessing it, serving it, in ways that Noah did not always. Noah was a sinner, even after the flood. This man who was formerly called righteous and blameless, who walked with God, right? Look what happens right after the flood. I mean, this is just a few verses after the covenant. So we read in verse 18 of Genesis 9, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So here's that repristinated group of humanity, like Adam and Eve in the beginning, pre-fall, who are now going to people this newly recreated or regenerated earth. Noah begins to be a man of the soil. So far, so good. Gardener, like Adam. He planted a vineyard. So far, so good. Uh, you know, there's many Bible verses that talk about, uh, I think sometimes we're not aware of these, but Psalm 104 talks about God gives wine to gladden the heart of men. He gives oil to make his face shine. Think of all those olive trees down there we were looking about that before. Olive oil, wine, and bread were like the staples of, of the ancient world. And so Psalm 104, for instance, verse 15, he gives wine to gladden the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. That's a positive statement. So making the vineyard is fine. Look what he does, though. He drank of the wine and became drunk. Everywhere the Bible condemns drunkenness. Everywhere, uniformly. So he's taken this role of, of being a, a vintner, having a vineyard, which was a blessing. It's talked about as a blessing all over the Psalms and everywhere else. But he misuses it. Right out of the gate. <laughs> he's brand new. The world's brand new. He's drunk, laying, uncovering in, 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 his, laying uncovered in his tent. And then I'm not even going to get into what, uh, you know, Ham does and what may have been the sin there, but there's a curse that falls. I mean, you just go right back to the trajectory before the flood. And this is Noah. These are the good guys. Contrast that with Jesus, who in John 2, at the Cana wedding feast, turns the water into wine. And we read about that event. So think about these two figures, Noah and Christ, and their relationship to wine. Noah abuses it and is laying drunk and shamed, and it brings on sin well, from his, in his whole family. Jesus blesses this wedding with water turned not just to wine, but really good wine, it says, and that this was the first miracle he did, and it manifested his glory. That's just the language of John chapter 2, verse 11. In short, Jesus knew no sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says. 1 Peter tells us that he committed no sin. 
He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And one other point here. The wonderful thing for us personally is that all of this amounts to the salvation of humankind, me and you. And this point is made in 1 Peter, where an analogy is drawn by Peter in his first letter between Noah and the flood and how the world was saved through water. And in a sense, Noah and his family were saved through water. And baptism is a kind of water-born mode of salvation for Christians. And he's just analogizing Noah and the flood to Christian baptism. God's patience waited in the days of Noah, he writes, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a, remo a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this ancient rite, this biblical rite of Christian baptism is likened to the flood in some sense. And as I noted earlier, the flood, though we think of it as being this awful destructive thing, is described in the text not only in that way, and not even ultimately in that way, but as something done by God brought on the world to save the world from itself. It's a reboot. It's a cleansing. And so the world is, in a sense, born again, right? Um, I, I want you to notice something here, um, some of the language used when uh, the, the, the flood is subsiding. And God has now finished his work of cleansing the world with this, this deluge. This is in, uh, Genesis 8, verse 1 and 13. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. That's the Hebrew word ruach, which is translated spirit many other places. So God's Holy Spirit is ruach, sometimes translated wind, sometimes translated spirit. Same word. God made a spirit his spirit, wind, blow over the earth, and waters subsided. And then it re we read that the ground became dry. So the earth, through God's spirit and the water, has repristinated, rebooted, uh, renewed, rebirthed the earth. But what does that language sound like? Anybody reminded of the creation account in Genesis 1, the very first few verses? The earth, Genesis 1-2, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit, the ruach of God, the wind, the breath, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then creation involves spirit and water and making dry land. These can't be accidents. It's just one more indication that the earth was born in Genesis 1 and, in a sense, reborn, if you will, in the flood of Genesis 6-9. through so what does that have to do with us and our own salvation? Well, I'm reminded, we could probably go a lot of different places. I'm reminded of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, that great Jewish Sanhedrin figure that makes the, 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 the three major appearances in the, in the Gospel of John. And then we'll close with this. We talked about the earth being born again. What about our own rebirth? Nicodemus doesn't understand what it means to be born again. Jesus says to him in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There it is again. Water and the Spirit creating rebirth. Thanks a lot.
for your attention today.